What a joy to be with you and thank you, Dan. As we were singing Psalm 84, I was thinking about the words we are singing. It's very important to think about the words you are singing. It's not a mind-numbing thing, but I was thinking and saying, there's no other place I'd rather be than at your courts with your people. And today, Brazil starts the World Cup. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, wow, you know, that's a big deal for Brazilians. And we always gather together, have a big barbecue and watch the soccer game and have fun. And I was thinking, that's the place I want to be. I don't want to be there. I want to be here with you, worshiping the Lord. There is no greater privilege than being with you, worshiping our Savior. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles in First Timothy. First Timothy chapter... Three, as we continue our series on the doctrine of the church, I want to welcome those who are visiting. Be welcome, and Rick and Sarah, be welcome. Yeah, and Casey also hadn't seen you in a long time. You're traveling. It's good to have you back. I want to invite you to stand up if you can. Let's read First Timothy chapter three, verses fourteen through sixteen. The apostle Paul says. I hope to come to you, Timothy, soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that, here's the reason, so that if I delay, you may know how one must behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And now he declares that truth through a hymn. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. You may be seated. As I was thinking about the sermon, especially this passage, as Paul describes the church, one passage came to my mind, and that's in Mark chapter 4, verse 30. In Mark chapter 4, verse 30, you remember in Jesus' time there was much misunderstanding and confusion about the nature of the kingdom of God. And Jesus raised this question. He says, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? And thinking about the confusion and misunderstanding in relation to the nature of the church, I thought it would be appropriate to change that and say, With what can we compare the church of God? Or what parable shall we use for the church? And I think if we ask the gurus and the experts about church, we're going to get a, some very interesting answers. First of all, I think they would say, you've got to remove the word church from your name. Because the word church carries with it baggage. And people don't want to go to a place that has the name church there. But the first thing they would say is, remove the title church from the name of your congregation. So here is what I think they would answer and I, I don't think that's how they have been answering. What shall we compare the church? Some would say that the church is like a theater. A theater. Why a theater? What is a theater? A theater is a place where you pay and you go and you receive professional entertainment. And that's how many people see the church. As a place of professional entertainment. You expect, and when you go to the theater, you expect to see the best movie, the best musical concert, the best players, the best actors. And many people believe that the church should be just like a theater. The best musicians with the most expensive equipment, 
the most glamorous clothes and now even the best backgrounds. I came across a website where they produce backgrounds for the church. So if you're preaching on the road of Emmaus, they have this awesome background that seems like the preacher is on the road of Emmaus. So if you're preaching through Jonah, it seems like you're inside the whale. I don't want to be inside of a whale, but you have, you have all those cool things, just like this wonderful theater. And that's how many people see the church. So that's why you have churches. There you go, and you have dramas and plays and the music band. They are the main elements of the church. Why do you go to this church? Oh, because the music is amazing. They have the best musicians there. So they go for the quality of entertainment. The pastor is basically an actor. is very funny, very eloquent. So you get good quality entertainment. And I know that you are here not for entertainment. Not only a theater, but also a talent show. The church for many people is a place where you can go and you have the opportunity to display your talent. So I came across a pamphlet from a church and it says, Come to our church and you can be an actor or a musician. And, and I hear, I have come across people, I know people, and you know people too, that they are part of certain churches because they can play in that church. Why do you go to that church? Because I play. Sometimes they pay, sometimes they don't pay. But what matters is, I play there. So the church is a talent show. They go because they have the opportunity to teach. Why do you go to this church? Oh, because I can teach there. So you hear people saying, I go to this church because there I can display my music talent. Do you know, do you know why? You might ask them, so you believe that the church is a, is a talent show? And they're going, no, by no means. Well, why do you go to this church? Because I play there. So, what does it that mean? I heard one person say, Sunday worship became my Hollywood stage. That's how they see the church. Not only a theater, a talent show, a lounge. The church is like a lounge where you go and you feel comfortable. It's a place of leisure activities. People come to church to sit and relax, have some good music, and be yourself. You think about a lounge. It's a room where you can sit and relax, be yourself. And so many people see the church as a lounge where they can just go sit down and relax. Don't you dare ask me to serve. I'm here to be served. I'm here to relax, enjoy. They never give, they never serve, they never commit, they never sweat for the church, they never cry for the church because the church is their lounge room. One website I came across this week says, if you have kids, we have an incredible children's ministry that will provide top-notch care for your children while you enjoy the service. So you come, you enjoy the service as a lounge, and we will provide children's ministry so you can just sit down and relax. And then they say, our children's staff and volunteers are the best and most experienced you will find you can rest assured that your children will be loved and taken care of in a safe, secure, exciting environment designed just for them all while you're learning about Jesus. And then they go on at, and I'm not going to say the name of the church, we also have a full coffee shop located at the main lobby. That's a lounge. Not only a theater, a talent show, a lounge, but a spa. S-P-A. A spa. What is a spa? It's a commercial establishment offering health and beauty treatment. Right? 
There you go, and you have the steam bath, you have all the massage, and that's how many people see the church. You come to the church to be massaged. Your ego is massaged. Your self-centeredness is massaged. You leave that place feeling upbeat and confident. You say, wow, how beautiful I am right now. That's how many people see the church. You come to a spa, you come whenever you feel like. It's all about other people serving you and massaging you. And let me tell you, if the massage had anything that came near to bring some confrontation, if you obliged to complain and never come back to that place. And I have more. I'll bring more next Lord's Day. So, to what shall we compare the church? Paul here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he gives us three metaphors for the church. So, here's the outline for this morning's sermon. The context and purpose of 1 Timothy... And then God's people as the household of God, God's people as the assembly of the living God, and then God's people as the pillar and foundation of the truth. So first of all, the context is important. And as you come to 1 Timothy, you see, you have 1 Timothy, you can look in your Bibles, you have 2 Timothy, and then you have Titus and Philemon. These letters are known as the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters. Because Paul is writing this letter to pastors, to local churches, but especially helping pastors to deal with issues in the local church. So they're called the pastoral letters. And we come to 1 Timothy. That's interesting, the background here. Because the book of Acts, the book of Acts finishes with Paul. Do you remember where Paul is? He's arrested, he's in Rome, he's waiting. And it seemed like he waited for two years, and then he was released from Rome, and then he leaves Rome with Titus and Timothy, and they go to Crete. That's the letter of Titus. So Paul, Timothy, and Titus, they go to Crete to, to do what? Plant churches. Get people saved and establish churches. And as they get there, they see that the situation is bad. They need leaders in the church. So Paul and Timothy leave who there? Titus. Titus stays in Crete. Paul and Timothy go to Ephesus. A lot of churches in Ephesus. That's where Paul and Timothy are. The situation is not going well in Ephesus. So you can see in chapter 1, verse 3. Look at 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. As I urge you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So they came to Ephesus, the situation wasn't good. And remember that Paul told them. Remember in, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is saying goodbye to them, he says, wolves will come. And they came. And there's false teaching in the churches. So Paul now, he leaves Timothy. He leaves Timothy in Ephesus. And he goes to Macedonia. First, probably he went to see Philemon in Coloss. And now he moves to Macedonia. So Paul is in Macedonia, and I think I have here, sometime between 62 and 65. Titus is in Crete, Timothy is in Ephesus, and he was writing letters to these pastors to help the churches there. So Paul write, writes this letter to provide his co-worker, Timothy, with a mandate to restore order to the Ephesian church, which had been corrupted by false teachings. So much of this letter is instruction for the local churches in Ephesus, just like all the other letters in the New Testament. 
Thuman, Frank Thuman, his New Testament theology, writes, the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth that everyone must know to be saved. For this reason, Timothy must lead the church in Ephesus back to right doctrine and right conduct. And when you come to chapter 3, you can see chapter 3 in your Bibles, verses 14 through 16. That's basically the heart of the letter. Here Paul expressed why he's writing this letter. It's very interesting. Here's the reason why he's writing this letter. And he tells us, because people are not behaving well in the church. There were false teachings. False teachings lead to wrong behavior, wrong lifestyle. So Paul is writing. He explains why he's so concerned about the church. Why he's so concerned about how people must behave. And it's all connected to the nature of the church. The identity of the church. So Paul is so eager to help them, to exhort them. It's because of the nature of the church. The way the church behaves reflects on the owner of the church. So that's why Paul is so concerned about the behavior in the church. So, let's see verse 14. Here's Paul's goal and hope. He says in verse 14, you can see in your Bibles, I hope to come to you soon, and now you remember... Wait a second, where is Paul? He's in Macedonia. He's visiting other Christians. Timothy's in Ephesus. So he's telling Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things, referring to the whole letter, so that, that's very important, I underline in my Bible, so that, here's the reason why, so that if I delay, here's Paul, he knows that he's not in charge of everything, he knows he's not in charge of nature, he's no, he knows that he's not in charge of even his life. So if I delay, if under God's providence I, I'm hindered to come, you may know how one must behave in the household of God. Interesting. I have here, Paul says, I'm writing these things to you. Why? Because he wants to teach how, I think you have there, let me see it. Here you go. How refers to a manner. One must implies necessity. And then you have the word conduct or behave. The ESV has behaved, the NASB and the NIV has conduct. And the word means lifestyle, a way of life. So, think about that. Paul is writing because the church is not a place where you come and behave the way you want. You don't decide how you behave in the church. The church belongs to God and He decides how you must behave in His presence. How you must live in His household. That's very interesting. Uh, Spurgeon, he writes, he says, Paul reminds Timothy that the church is the household of God. And in God's own house, a man ought to be upon his best behavior. For it's no light thing to draw near unto the Lord. A poor man who is called to visit a prince or a king will anxiously inquire how he ought to act. If you go visit the president, there is etiquette. There is, people are going to teach you how you must behave in the presence of the president. We poor creatures that we are, when we are admitted into the church, which is the house of God, should inquire what conduct will be proper and pleasant in those who are admitted into the presence of the great king and permitted to dwell within his palace gates. Think about that. I'm talking to the men here who are married, you have your house. Imagine you invite 
a friend of yours to come to have dinner with you. And say, hey, be at home at 6 o'clock. We're going to have dinner. You can, we are welcome to come and have dinner with my family. The guy comes at 4. And he looks at what you're cooking. And he's like, actually, I don't like tuna fish casserole. So he opens your refrigerator. I know you don't like that either. He opens that refrigerator. <laughs> and he pulls the steak. And he says, hey, actually, you're going to cook steak for me. And then he starts giving orders to your children and to your wife. What will he do? <laughs> <laughs> what would you do? Moms, spend so much time raising your children. I imagine you invite a friend of yours to come to your house, and then she comes and she just disregards completely what you have been teaching your children. How would you feel? So why do people think that's right for them to come to church and tell God how they must behave? Hmm. So, the reason why Paul is so concerned about how Christians must live their lives in the local churches is because of the nature and identity of the church. It's God's honor that's at stake here. And he's going to show that by using three metaphors for the church. And the first one is the household. You see, in verse 15, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The church is God's household. Each local church it doesn't belong to the Southern Baptist Convention. It doesn't belong to the Presbyterian denomination. First of all, it belongs to God. It's His church. The word oikos, where you have household there, oikos, refers to the family, consisting of those related by blood and marriage, as well as slaves and servants living in the same house. The idea of the word oikos is a, is a family, a group of people who live together and share bounds of love and commitment to one another. And that's something that Paul has been developing throughout his letter. And I invite you to look at chapter 3, look at verse 4. He's talking about the qualifications for elders. And he says, And he must manage his own household, oikos, well, with all dignity, keeping his students submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And what is the logic here? If you cannot take care of your own household, you cannot take care of God's household. That's the parallel that Paul is saying. So he's developing this theme of household, the importance of God's household. And then you come to chapter 5. Look at verses 1 and 2. How Christians must live in the local church. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you the father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. In all purity, the church is God's family. That's what Paul is developing throughout this, this letter here. But a lot of times we, we, we come to the text like that and you think about a household in America. 21st century America. How is a household? In, most households are pretty messed up, honestly. But that's not how it was back in the day. We need to go back and, and try to understand what is the concept that Paul has in mind here. Let me quote one commentator. He says, The Greco-Roman household consisted of different groups, duties, and responsibilities. And in the larger ones, stewards. Remember why Paul calls himself a steward and leaders as stewards? Because that was the language of a household, of a family. And in larger households, stewards were given authority to see that each did his or her share so that the master's purpose might be achieved. 
the head of the house there. The concept of household with its associated notions of interdependence, acceptable conduct, and responsibility was so strong that Paul could borrow it to illustrate the nature of the church. It, too, both then and now, is made of different groups, men and women from every level of society, parents and children, employers and employees, who must depend upon and in love serve one another. And it's the task of the stewards, bishops, elders, deacons, to ensure that the household accomplished the master's goal. When you think about the days of Paul, the ancient times, the household was a place of great privileges, amazing privileges to be part of a household, to be part of a family. But with these privileges, there were responsibilities also. And I want to be practical here and just help us to think through this metaphor, why God is using the metaphor of a family, of a household, to refer to His people, the church. Why is God using this metaphor? What is the implications here? And, and the first one, I believe, is the metaphor of the church as a household, as a family, is that implies intimate or close relationships. In a normal family, people know each other. They know each other. You know the members of your family. You know when one is missing. You, you know when one is sick, happy, sad, prospering, suffering. So you know each other. And for me, it's a bizarre, even contradictory concept when you talk to Christians and they want to move to the woods. I want to go to the woods and the mountains and be by myself. Wait a second, why do you want to do that? I just want to be by myself. Ah, how do you connect that to the Christian living? They're supposed to be in a family, loving others, serving others. So I say, in order to have God as your father, you must have Christians as your brothers and sisters. Okay? Don't come to me and say, I have God as my father, but I don't need a church. Why? You are that special? Honestly, you are that special that God gave you this gift alone. That you don't need people. That you don't need accountability. That you don't need to be responsible for other people and have other people responsible for you. As Calvin says, you cannot have God as your father if you don't have the church as your mother. That was John Calvin's words. And as in any form of true relationship, think about relationship, the aspect of family, people will hurt you. In any relationship, people will hurt you. People will offend you. I don't know any relationship where two sinners have not hurt each other. There will be conflict. There will be tension. There will be frustration at times. But you must deal and work with the relationships by talking, be, being patient, repenting, ask for forgiveness, forgiving. That's the picture of a family, of a household. You just don't live, a, don't leave a church because there was a conflict. Did you try? Did you strive in humility to fix that? And besides that, you don't choose those whom the Lord saves. The Lord saves whomever He wants and He brings to His church. Think about Paul. Think about Saul. I don't want this man in my church. I saw him killing people. He hates Christians. And now the Lord says, actually, he's part of my family. And you see, because people received him and loved him as their own son, own brother, he became the greatest Christian who ever lived. So God doesn't adopt people to be living by themselves. God adopts children to live in his family. That's very important nowadays, especially in America, where so many people think they can be Christians living their 
lonely lives. That's not biblical. Every single letter of the New Testament is written to a community, not to individual Christians living their own lives. Even Philemon, it's a local church. It's an issue in a local church. It's an inestimable privilege to be part of God's family. Think about that. We are not cosmic orphans. We are adopted children. That's a great blessing. Adopted children. Not cosmic orphans wandering around not knowing what's going on. Besides that, we have commitment and responsibility. As God gives us the metaphor of a family, He's implying that in every family there must be commitment and responsibilities. Every member of the family must serve. And that's what we have been teaching our kids. We have responsibilities in the household. Daddy has responsibilities. Mommy has responsibilities. And you guys, as you're growing, you have responsibilities also. Sweep the floors. Vacuum. So we start giving responsibilities because that's how a family must work. But for some people, the aspect of responsibility is very hard because they were spoiled their entire lives. Mom and dad and everyone else gave everything they needed. So they come to church and they think that's family. People are just going to serve me and I'm not going to serve anyone. Others, they're very zealous, very responsible, very trustworthy with things related to their own kingdom. But when it comes to the church, they have a hard time being responsible. Some people are always on time at work. When it comes to the church, mm, have a hard time getting there on time. You see how God is wise in giving these metaphors? All the applicability of these metaphors. Family requires commitment and responsibility in order for it to function properly. Imagine going to a house. I was thinking about that yesterday. I was preparing the sermon. Going to a house where the children is in charge. Children. I know. <laughs> I see your faces. <laughs> Can you imagine? You go to a house where the children are in charge. It's chaos. Nobody cares for anyone. That's like a nightmare. I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, that's one of those things I probably have as a nightmare. Being in a house where it's chaotic. Nobody cares about anyone. The children are in charge. Like, so we have commitment. We have responsibilities that's required for a family, for a household to work, to work properly. And just thinking about this aspect of responsibilities, I, Brian and I, we love how... The members of this church are responsible. And I want to just, in, in many aspects, but I want to I speak one in particular here. I never, I never told you, hey, let me know if you're not coming to church. I never told you that. You guys naturally let us know when you're not coming to church. You guys text, email, hey, I won't be there. Why? That's responsibility. You know that people will ask, where is so-and-so? Where is John? Where is Brian? Where is Sarah? Why? Because it's a household. When someone is missing, you care. And you guys are responsible people. And you just, in your maturity, you always let us know. Hey, I won't be there. And something that we never demanded or asked from you guys. So I praise you for that. It's just commitment and responsibility. I'm just thinking how sad it is how many people are willing to commit themselves to the workplace, to their employer, to school, to sports, but they run away from commitment to a local church. They can sign any paper related to work, checks, but if you say, hey, you need to sign this membership, this covenant membership profession, oh, I can't sign that, that's not in the Bible. Oh, but you can sign everything else. You sign the document 
stating they're marrying your wife, they're entering a covenant. That's not in the Bible to sign any paper. But you see, when it comes to the church, they have a hard time. They sign papers and they put their commitment for everything else but the church. And especially here in America where it tends to be very individualistic. It's very hard to understand the family, the concept of commitment and responsibility. The church must supply my personal needs and if the church doesn't supply my personal needs, I'm out of here. And the picture that Jesus wants to see is much greater, much bigger than that. Not only that, but the family also speaks of diversity unity. Unity. The language of family speaks of diversity in unity. In a family, you have different members, different gifts and different characteristics. But they are united by family bounds of love. The same with local churches. And you think about the Greco-Roman in Paul's time. A household had slaves, servants, in-laws. They're all living together there. And they're considered one family, one household. And I will talk more about that next Lord's Day when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Not only diversity and unity, but the language, the metaphor of a household speaks of God dwelling in that place. He is the Father. He is the great patriarch of the home. He dwells there. That's a very beautiful concept here. That's where God lives. That's where His presence is. And I think about Genesis 28 when Jacob... Remember Jacob, he's dreaming and he sees in a dream the ladder with angels ascending and descending. Remember his response when he wakes up. God is surely in this place. And filled with fear, he names that place what? Bethel. What is Bethel? The house of God. Why? Because God is in this place. And the same with the church. God is present here. That's why there is joy. That's why there is uh, healing in the church. People are satisfied in the Lord. Why? Because He's present. He's present among His people. God's presence is a fountain of refreshment for the thirsty soul, food for the famine, comfort for the afflicted. But not only that, conviction of sins for those who need to be convicted. God is present, He's holy, and He confronts sinfulness. It's interesting. I think about, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is talking about order in the church. And one of the reasons why he wants order and people is speaking with clarity, not mumbling, speaking other things that people cannot understand, is that when visitors come to the household of God, listen to Paul's languages. If an outsider comes in, that he will be convicted by all, called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. We can't be offensive in the church. We can't be confronting people's sin in the church. That's the opposite of what Paul says. God is present. And people must come and fall and be convicted of their sins. And say, yes, God is in this place. Well, that's the image of a family. Very rich in application. Now, let me ask you, how do you enter a family? How do you enter a family? There is a process. Now, think about even a natural family. I cannot just say, hey, actually, I want to be on the Hastings family now. I want to be part of the Shoes family. Zach, you're going to adopt me, and I'm just going to be living with you now. You can't do that. You just don't do it. There is a whole process to be part of a family. 
And I think the concept of membership, a lot of people ask, where is membership in the Bible? It's everywhere. Just have eyes to see. In a family you have members. In a body you have members. Isn't the church the body of Christ? Isn't the church the household of God? You think about entering a family. People must accept you. They, they, they need to decide. We, we will love Him. We will give ourselves for this person. And He will give Himself for us. He will love us. He will serve us too. Mutual responsibility. Well, let me ask you, how do you leave a family? How do you leave a family? Think about that. How do people leave families? You want to live in a good standing. Can you imagine one day, hey, where is Matt? Isn't he in his bedroom? You go there, all his things are gone. He left the family, didn't talk to anyone. There is a name for this type of people. Runaway kids. Runaway children. That's how they're called. And there's trouble for those who welcome runaway kids. How much more in the household of God? So many churches, they don't care how you got there. They don't care how you left your old church. That's for me just amazing. We have had interaction with other churches here in town. And they say, mind your own business. Mind your own business. Because we want to know how. Who is this who is coming to our church? How did they leave the family? If most people do not leave their families without talking, why do people think they can do that to the church? You see, it's a messed up concept of the church. It's a very low view of Christ and His death in bringing one people to Himself. One commentator writes, The effect of Paul's use, and here his words, are, I think, are very good and precise. He says, The effect of Paul's use of household imagery is to depict the people of God as God's household, a living and growing family. We must be growing our love for one another, growing knowing each other, growing our love in the way we treat the older men as fathers, the older women as mothers, the younger women as sisters. A living and growing family whose life together requires mutuality of service and care, recognition of responsibilities, and a sense of identity, belonging, and protection. A household, it would be understood that the community, as a household, it would be understood that the community of God's people would be comprised of varieties of people, roles, and responsibilities, and that to function effectively, order would be needed to be maintained. Do you love this aspect of the church? Let me ask you. You don't need to answer me, but you need to answer the Lord. Do you love this aspect of the church? Commitment and responsibility. How you just love the knowledge that you receive and how your head is growing and your heart shrinking. Do you love this aspect of the local church that you have responsibilities to serve, to love, and privileges of being loved and being served? Paul also goes on. He says the this family is actually the assembly, the church, the assembly of the living God. The family of God consists of those called out from the world of darkness into His marvelous light. I have there the word church. I think it's sad that we use the word church. Assembly, the, the word, the, I think better pictures, ecclesia, those called out, the assembly the assembly of God's people, of the living God. It's interesting. Ek, out, kaleo, to call, was used for the summoning of an army to assemble, was used for 
calling citizens of a community for an assembly so they could talk about issues and decide things together. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, this word, especially in the Greek version, you get the Greek version of the Old Testament, ecclesia, in many occasions, refers to the gathering for the assembly of Israel to hear the words of God and worship Him. So you have there, and I invite you to write down Deuteronomy 4.10, and talks about the assembly. Deuteronomy 9.10, Deuteronomy 18.16, Nehemiah 13.1, the assembly, the church, the ecclesia, those called by God to gather and hear His Word and worship Him in the Old Testament. That's the word that Paul is using here. Remember the continuity. There is an aspect of continuity with the people of God from the Old Covenant. The word, the word ecclesia appears 114 times in the New Testament. Paul used the most, 62 times. And the vast majority is always referring to local churches. I have heard people say about the invisible church. I'm like, what is the invisible church? <laughs> the invisible church? <laughs> what is the invisible church? The church is visible. Jesus didn't die for invisible people. He died for visible people. Uh, things you need to think about. Here people say, oh, I belong to the invisible church. What is that? The invisible church. The vast majority of times that Paul used the word ecclesia is always referring to local churches. Not always, but most of the time referring to local churches. So those who are called by God, by the Spirit of God, with the effective calling and the saving calling to come out of the world, they are not wandering around and being alone. Instead, they are called out to a specific assembly and gathering. That's the implication of the word church, ecclesia, assembly. God called you out of darkness to what? To be wandering around by yourself? No, to an assembly of people who worship Him, who gather together to know each other and worship Him and hear His Word and obey Him and love Him. And what? By loving each other. First John, if you tell, if you say that you love God, but you don't love your brother that you can see, you're a liar. And you know what happens to liars? They will not be in heaven. And Paul defines the church of the living God. The church of the living God. The church belongs to God. He bought it. It's His. And you think about this. Just look at us. This ordinary gathering of ordinary people actually is God's most precious possession. That's mind-boggling. And I think about the churches in Ephesus. They would look around and see those huge temples. And Paul is saying, actually, those churches gathering in homes He's saying, actually, he said, these houses where the living God is present, not in those huge temples. The living God is with His people. What a source of encouragement. What a source of encouragement. And lastly, we come to Paul's last metaphor, and that's the church as a temple. And he says, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the assembly of the living God. And then now, the last one. A pillar and foundation or buttress of the truth. So the church is God's family, and these family members assemble together to protect and promote the truth. And when you go through Paul's letters, the truth refers to God's revelation in the Scriptures of His saving works in the, pres in the person of Jesus Christ. Notice that the church is a pillar and foundation of the truth, not of social works. 
So many people think the church should be promoting just social works, social justice. Let's go back. The main thing is the truth. And when Paul defines the truth, the truth he's thinking about God's revealing Himself in the person of Christ, saving sinners from the wrath to come. And you think about Ephesus, where Timothy is. They are known. That place was known for the temple of Diana. One of the wonders. It was jaw-dropping to, to, to see the pillars and the roof. had more than 100 columns. Imagine that temple had more than 100 pillars. Beautiful pillars. Each six stories high. And so many pillars were needed because the entire roof was made of marble. Without all these pillars, the temple would collapse rather than remaining visible for miles around. Similarly, Riken says, every church is a pillar that helps to bolster the truth of Jesus by holding up for the world to see. So a pillar brings support, beauty to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the pillar of the truth, each local church is to lift up the truth up high so that others can see, just like ancient temples. People would see from far away, oh, the temple of Zeus, the temple of Apollos, it's far away and you could see because those pillars would be holding that beautiful ceiling and roof with gold and marble. So that's where we are going to worship God. And that's what Paul is saying, now actually the church must be this pillar that upholds the truth of Jesus so other people can see from far away and come and worship the living God. That's why it's crucial for members of the church, Christians, to behave and live their lives in accordance to God's truth. Spurgeon says, An unholy, unregenerated church can never be the pillar of truth. If there is a failure in vital godliness, if humble walking with God is neglected, the church cannot remain a healthy church of God. And that's why the church must fight for purity. That's why the church, and I say the church, the family, the members, they must fight for purity. Hey, brother, I saw that you're reading a very interesting book there in your bookshelf. What is the purpose of reading that book? What is the point of reading that book? Oh, I just love the author. All the visions that she has. And all the things that God is showing him, all these new revelations. Hey, brother, you need to be careful with that. You see, the whole church helping one another to remain in the truth of God. Hey, brother, I can see that you're, the way you're treating your wife and kids, the way you are behaving outside at the workplace, I can notice that's not matching with the gospel. Accountability. Hey, that's not good. You're supposed to be upholding the truth of God. We are truth displayers, truth upholders, and truth guardians. But never truth inventors or truth creators. That's the issue with the Roman Catholic Church. They come to this passage and they say, Do you see? Do you see here? And they believe that the church should be creating new truths. That's not what Paul is saying. We are just upholding the truth, the truth of God. That's very important to think through. The privilege of being called... A pillar and foundation of the truth is given to local churches. This privilege is not given to parachurch organizations. So many parachurches taking the place of churches. God never promised them. God did not give them this privilege. 
to be a pillar and foundation of the truth. This privilege was not given to individual Christians by themselves, but to the church. It was not given to the family, to the homeschool or the Christian school movement. It was not given to the White House. It was not given to the university and seminaries, but to the church, to the local church. And think about that. We here in Salem, in this small gathering of Christians, are the family of God, the assembly of the living God, and the pillar and foundation of the truth. What a privilege. Many of you are not wise. Many of you are not from rich homes. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. That's exactly God's purpose. To get the nobodies, put them together in a place where people think that you're moronic, wasting your time. And he say, actually, that's where the truth is being displayed. And other churches, other churches in Salem, Salem Heights, Grace Baptist Church, many Reformed, and so many other faithful churches. They are pillars and foundation of the truth in this area here. So, bringing to an end, how do we display and support the truth as a local church? How do we display and protect and preserve the truth as a local church? First of all, if you go throughout the, the letter to... First Timothy, you're going to see that Paul emphasized the importance of preaching. Preaching the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You don't come here to hear a fascinating, funny story or to hear about my feelings. You come to here to hear the truth. That's it. I'm boring. I don't have cool stories to tell you. I just keep with the texts. And I believe that's why you're here. That's how we as a church promote, uphold, preserve the truth. The preaching of the truth. Not only that, but by the singing of the truth. We are pillars of the truth when we join our voices together and sing the deep and glorious truth of the Scriptures. We don't gather here to sing songs that give you goosebumps or to sing songs that make you move. We gather together, first of all, to sing the truth of God. And a lot of times it's offensive. There is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins. But when we gather together and we join our voices in singing this truth, we are being a pillar and foundation of the truth. And that's why Paul finishes here with verse 16, a hymn. He's singing. That's what the early church was singing about the truth of Christ. Not only that, but by praying the truth. The fact that our public prayers are grounded in the truth is another way that we as a local church are a pillar and foundation of the truth. When people come here and they hear prayers that speak about who God is and about who we are, we are upholding the truth. By the ordinances, by order in the church, the truth of God is proclaimed and upheld by the order that we have in this local church, and also by commitment, submission, and love to one another. That's how the church displays the truth. Just look around. Look around. All these weird people you had never seen before in your life. How about me? I come from Brazil. It's like, see, when people look at us, say, all these people, what Rick likes doing? I don't know. Rick likes doing yard. I don't like doing yard. You think about hobbies and other things and characteristics. And we are united in love, in a deep love for one another. We care for each other. We are responsible for each other. And as the world looks at us, they see a bunch of people, they have one thing in common, and that one thing unites them in a tighter, 
bound than any other relationship. That's how we display as a church. That's how we are a pillar and foundation of the truth. People come and they see the love, commitment, responsibilities. People outside here, they say, wow, I'm amazed how you guys come every Sunday and set up things every single Sunday and joyfully. We are being pillars of the truth. We love one another. Nobody's getting money to do that. Getting the trailer, bring the trailer. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> People coming early, joyfully, praying, loving. That's how we are. A pillar and foundation of the truth. So, Paul clearly shows us that the church is not a lounge. It's not a spa. It's not a theater. Maybe the theater of God's truth, I would say. It's a theater where God's truth is displayed like in no other place. So Paul declares the church to be the family of God, the assembly of the living God, and the pillar and foundation of the truth. Let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? If someone comes to you after the service and says, where were you? I was at church. Oh yeah, what were you doing there? Well, I was listening to the pastor to speak for an hour about the importance of the church. And that person says, oh, you're crazy. You don't believe that, right? How would you respond to that? Would you say, oh, actually, let me take a look at my notes first. Or they would come out of your heart. Have you bought this truth? Is it a first-hand truth? That you have bought it? That the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes and give you understanding to accept that? And we talk about the church. And the church is precious. But the church is precious because she belongs to the most precious one, Jesus Christ. Okay? There is no salvation in the church. There is no salvation in the church. That's the Roman Catholic heresy. Salvation in the church. No. There is no salvation in the church. Jesus alone can save people. And He is so gracious, so loving, so merciful that He saves people and He places them in a group of people that will care, that will serve, that will cause you to grow and become more like Him. Father, we praise You. We thank You for the mystery, this beautiful mystery now revealed to us. Jesus Christ and His church. Thank You for loving us. Loving us so much that You'd send Your Son in the form of a servant to die, shed His blood for a people who would become Your people. And You're so wise that You know that we cannot do that on our own. We cannot live the Christian life alone. And You have given us local churches to reflect Your beauty, Your majesty, Your truth, Your love, so help us. Help us, Lord. Help us to be faithful to You as a local church. Help us to proclaim the glories of Christ with our words and with our lives. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to stand up. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed. The Lord bless you.